Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by my words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken." Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the great waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth from Mazaroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of, heaven, of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? 
Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey? when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food. Giving and receiving gifts is a significant feature in our society. We give gifts as, as we uh, encounter a momentous occasion, and it seems as the years go on, our definition of a momentous occasion uh, seems to regularly expand. Hey, Uh, You graduated from kindergarten. Well done. I know there's more than a couple of us in here who didn't get anything for finishing the first grade, Um, but there it is. Gift giving is a big part of our society. Uh, We all give gifts, but it seems that skilled gift givers may be a dying breed, right? Everybody's giving gifts, but maybe I'm um, a bit sour, but it just seems like, yeah, here's a gift. Um, The really skilled gift giver seems to be a dying breed. Um, The gift card is almost always appreciated, but it doesn't exactly tick the box of thoughtful or life-changing, right? Gift cards are, hey, never going to turn down a gift card, but a gift card says, hey, I thought about this on the way over, and here you go. I hope you like Home Depot. Uh, Many gifts are given and received and then promptly forgotten as their significance blends into the background of life. But every now and again, a gift hits the bullseye and meets a particular need with such excellence that we are blessed in a truly unique and spiritual way. Maybe it, it meets your need for lunch, or maybe it's like, wow, you know me. I feel known. I feel loved by this gift. Every now and again, a gift just hits that mark. Sometimes these are wrapped gifts open on a birthday, one of those momentous occasions, but often the truly precious gifts don't come buried in tissue paper, and they're not found on any Amazon wish list. The best gifts, when you think about the best gifts you've ever received, those gifts are often received in times of some sort of significant need, and they're given by a person who seems to have special knowledge of us and our situation. Think of some of the best things someone has given you. And it probably wasn't given to you on your birthday. It was probably given to you because they saw that you were going through something and they knew you needed something. In Job chapter 38, God gives Job the gift of a personal visit. Sometimes just somebody showing up and helping out, being there, is an important gift. And in chapter 38, God gives Job the gift of a personal visit. Friendship is wildly valuable, and we will see how the gift of God's friendship is the precious blessing Job has desperately needed, particularly in the midst of his grief. As we get into this chapter, it's important to remember that God's response to Job is not only given to a man in excruciating pain, but a man who has been suffering for a long time. Okay, let me remind you, for those of you who haven't been here for the weeks, months, 
and even now years that we've been in the book of Job, this isn't simply a man who's in pain, but this is a man who has endured a lot for a long time when God finally shows up. Job expressed his longing to die and to have never been born all the way back in chapter 3. That seems like a long time ago. We have to turn the calendar several times to get back to the time we dealt with chapter 3. And so as we encounter God's visitation in these last chapters, we must not forget that we have listened to a lot of cocky counseling from Job's friends and a lot of pained prayers from Job before we finally reach this place. So just understand the context that God's visit comes after a lot. I had initially intended to tackle a lot more of God's response to Job, but as I meditated and prepared this week, I realized there was a lot to say about the first nine words. So I'm not going to cover much ground in this chapter this morning, but I hope we'll see that God richly blesses us even in the smallest passages of Scripture. My main idea, the primary point, in some senses I've already said it, but the main idea is this, God's presence is a precious gift to those who grieve. I hope you can walk out of here and say and know that God's presence is a precious gift to those who grieve. So as I hope to make this point clear to you from the text, I want to show you that God's presence is a precious gift, and I want to highlight four particular things regarding this first verse of chapter 38. I want to highlight the tone. I want to highlight God's name. I want to highlight God's answer. And I want to highlight God's whirlwind. Tone, name, answer, whirlwind. All right, let's look at this precious gift of God's presence. And let's read verse 1 to refresh. We see there, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. That's as far as we're getting today, believe it or not. First thing I want to say regards tone. There are a number of things I want you to see in this text. We could go on and on and on. But there are certain things in this particular passage that heighten our awareness and make us think about the tone in which these words are being spoken. Um, Before we get into these other things, I want to address tone. Because the first interpretation we have of a text is its tone. We understand that we need to have a certain tone when we encounter a question mark. We understand that when we read angry exclamations or uh, happy exclamations that we have to have a tone. And even without giving any interpretation uh, or any study, when we read these words, we give them a tone. And that's our first interpretation of that. And I simply want to check, is our first interpretation right? Is the tone that we are hearing these words in accurate? We all have some sort of guess as to whether the words that we are reading in any passage, but particularly this passage, we all have some sort of guess as to whether or not these words are happy, sad, impatient, or if they're full of understanding. As we come to this particular passage, all of us have some sort of guess as to the kind of tone being used. 
Okay? Preachers have to exegete the text, but preachers also have to exegete their audience. It's my job to look into the text and tell you what it says, but I also get to speak into your unique and particular ears and in the way that you hear me. Some of us assume that there's a harsh and biting tone in these words. Job has been praying messy, suffering prayers to God. Job has stumbled and been corrected by his friends, it seems, and so we think, man, the Lord has really taken after him. We think of some of these particular words when God calls Job in verse 3 to dress for action like a man, and we think, that's harsh, that is biting. These words are coming from a frustrated and annoyed speaker. There are some in this room, probably more than any of us might guess, but there are some in this room who have the tendency to assume that other people are mad at you all the time and that God only acts in your life when he's upset. I want to remind you, particularly those of you who have the assumption that God is angry or that other people are angry with you, particularly God, I want to remind you of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is a passage that should be familiar to every person, um, but particularly every Christian. God uses these words several times throughout Scripture to reveal himself. He describes himself. He introduces himself with these words. And so, because of the great value, because they're from God, because they're words of God, and because they're repeated throughout the Old Testament, I commend these important words to you for your memorization and meditation. I hope to read them to you and for them to be enlightening to you right now, but I hope that you will jot down Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, and count that as a key passage for your life. So let me read these, verse, these two verses from Exodus 34, and I want these to be in you as you interpret the tone. God speaks, and this, these verses should shape the way you understand his tone. We read this in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. If it is in your head that God is primarily chasing down your faults, then you need to remember that God describes him first as himself. He describes himself first as merciful, gracious, slow to anger. He describes himself as abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If it's your knee-jerk reaction to interpret God as angry and his corrections as annoyed, then I want you to see that you're not seeing God the way he describes himself. You with me? It must also be said 
These are not in conflict, but these two things complement one another. It must also be said that if you see God as not caring about your choices and never judging sinners or disciplining his children, then you are equally misguided. When God explains himself, when God introduces or describes himself, he wants you to know that he's merciful. But he doesn't want you to get the wrong idea about his mercy and think that he doesn't care about sin, that he doesn't care about your choices, and that he never judges wickedness. Both of those things need to be held together. Some of us understand God punishes sin, God hates sin, and we get that. That's why God hates me and is chasing me around. Some of us get that God is merciful, and we think God doesn't care how I live. truth of the matter is, is that both of you are wrong. If you see God as one or the other, God is both. And if God describes himself first and foremost as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, our knee-jerk reaction to hearing God speak is not to assume that he's annoyed. You with me? We shouldn't automatically assume that God is angry and out of patience We also need to remember what God has said and will say about this man, Job. We need to understand the character of God, particularly as it's expressed in Exodus 34, but understand what God has said about Job as he's speaking to Job here. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, God said this about Job. He said, There is none like my servant Job on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God was delighted in Job. Job was unique and special to God. So unique and special that Satan accused God of blessing him too much. Job went through many trials and tribulations between chapters 2 and 38. And he said a lot from his suffering soul. And yet, even though he said all that he said, in chapter 42, verse 7, God will say to Job's miserable comforters, My anger burns against you, for you haven't spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. God will vindicate Job after this speech. God loves Job before he visits in chapter 38, and he loves Job when he speaks about him in chapter 42. These truths need to shape the way we interpret the tone of God's visitation, and I think we do well to see love, mercy, and compassion in God's appearance, even if our gut tells us otherwise. We'll we'll speak later this morning, Lord willing, about this whirlwind, and next week, Lord willing, uh, God will allow me to do more than nine words, and we'll talk about uh, what it means to dress for action but we should assume that God is moving towards Job with love and compassion and mercy. There is most certainly correction happening here. Don't misunderstand me. Mercy doesn't mean, being full of mercy does not mean you're unable to correct somebody. Job is getting corrected here. But the correction, God's correction particularly, unlike ours, is never sinful. It's never impatient. It's never harsh. God's adjustments, God's corrections always come from perfect love. 
So this should be at the foundation. This should be a base for us as we move into this text and as we try to interpret the tone of it. Okay? Uh, when you consider your own reactive thoughts about God and his posture toward you, how do they line up with God's self-description as merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving sin, yet also judging the guilty? How does, how does your assessment, your picture of God line up with God's picture of himself? Are you believing lies about God's gentleness? You have a picture of God in your mind. You have a reaction to life's circumstances. You have a sense of how God is standing toward you. When you naturally react or you naturally think about how God stands according to you, are they in line with what we read in Exodus 34? Or are you believing lies about how gentle he is? On the other side of things, are you believing lies about God's hatred for sin? Some of us know that God hates sin and we feel like God hates us. Some of us think God is, we know that God is merciful and so we think God doesn't care about sin. When you hold your understanding of God up to the truth of Scripture, where is it out of whack and where does it need to be corrected and brought to the truth of what God says about himself? If you're a person who struggles with anger and merciless speech, hear me, there's a high likelihood that you think God has that posture toward you. If you are feeling controlled by your sin and like your decisions keep leading you to heartache, there's a high likelihood that your thoughts about sin are in direct disagreement with God's posture towards sin. Some of you are mean mamas, and, and there's a high likelihood that it's because you think God is angry with you all the time. Some of you feel like your life is controlled by your own desires, and it keeps going in the gutter, and at the root of that is a, is a failure to believe the truth about sin as God has said it. You think sin is no big deal, and guess what? When sin's driving the car, you ain't staying on the road. Are you believing the truth about God and his posture toward you? Friends, I want to, you to renew your mind by the scriptures and let God himself shape your thoughts about him. Don't let other people tell you about how God is. Don't primarily let your, even your pastor tell you how God is. And certainly don't let your feelings tell you how God is. Let God tell you how he is. Spend minutes, spend hours, spend days meditating on Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Let that be true. Let that shape the way you think about God. Okay. We have to deal with a posture and with an understanding of God's tone. And now the second thing I want to draw out from this passage is God's name. Okay. Hopefully you have your Bible open, whether in um, page form or in web page form, um, and look at verse 1 there, and hopefully you see the word that is used in reference to God there. It helps if you're seeing it in print because you'll see the use 
of all capital letters in the title Lord. You see that, whether in your Bible or the Blue Bible or the app on your phone, you'll see the, the word Lord using all capital letters. Lots of you know this already, but so that we're all learning this valuable lesson. When you see in the scriptures the use of the word Lord with all capital letters, this is signifying the translation or the use of God's covenant name in the original Hebrew. There are Hebrew words to speak of a Lord, such as Abraham is Lord or even God is the Lord. But when the scriptures use Lord in all capital letters, that's a direct translation to show you, hey, in the original Hebrew, this is the use of the name Yahweh. Uh, As the author of Job chooses to use this special and covenant name of God, this covenant name Yahweh here, our minds should run to, the God, to God's self-initiated kindness to Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham, right? God made a covenant with him, and he made precious promises to him and to his yet unseen offspring. When we hear God's covenant name, when we see all of these capital letters together, our minds should run to Moses, who was in the wilderness, and he stood before a burning bush that told him to take his shoes off. When we hear the covenant name of God, we should understand that when God gave his covenant name to Moses, he gave a promise that he was going to lead his covenant people out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom in the promised land. This isn't just general, vague talk about God, about creator, about maker, about sustainer. This is direct conversation about a named God who makes covenant with his people particularly a covenant of love. As the author chooses to use the covenant name Yahweh here, we are helped to know that it breaks the pattern of the many references to God that have been used in Job's words and his not-so-friendly friend's words. The book of Job is full of references to God and talk about God, but when the author of Job uses the name Yahweh here in verse 1, This is breaking a long-standing pattern of references to God without using the the name Yahweh. There's a pattern, and we're breaking that pattern. There have been many references to God, but the last time that the name Yahweh was used in the book of Job is in reference to the God who sits in heaven and does what he pleases all the way back in chapters 1 and 2. There's been a lot of talk about God, but Yahweh hasn't been used since chapter 2. So when Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and even Elihu speak of God, the name Yahweh has not been used. So when his name comes up here, this is a unique thing that we should pay attention to. The significance of this is that when God responds to Job, he is doing it personally, and he's doing it relationally. When I come to you as pastor, I come to you as a title right? The title comes first. When I come to you as Drew, there's a unique element to that. And so when we see the name of God, we should see that there's a unique, special relationship there, that he's doing it personally, just not just on behalf of God, but God himself is coming, and he's coming relationally. There's an intimacy and an accuracy in these words that has been missing while men made their best attempts to speak for God. A transition is happening. 
God is speaking. His name is used. Understand, he is here personally, and he is here intimately, and he is now speaking accurately. All these guys have been talking about God, but now Yahweh himself is here, and he's speaking. Job and the others may have been true to some degree, but now God. Yahweh himself is here to personally make things clear. I think in some senses this is why I'm having such trepidation about this passage of Scripture in this section, is that I can hang out with theology nerds a lot. And I can read an awful lot of theology articles and books, and I can listen to people talk about God, but understand that when Yahweh comes in the room, that's an absolutely different thing. This is a dramatic change. Philosophers talking about God and God himself is a dramatic shift in this story. Okay? Sometimes we flippantly talk about the questions we would ask God when we see him face to face. Or, uh, Lord, would you explain Romans 9 to me? Understand, friends, when you see Jesus face to face, I don't think we're going to run through a list of questions. I think we're going to be struck. I think we're going to be dumbfounded. I think when we see face to face what we have seen dimly in a mirror, I think we're going to be blown away. And so as we step over this threshold and we've moved from God talk to Yahweh, I want you to feel the significance and the weight of what we're dealing with here. Not only this, the weight of it, but the beauty and the glory and the goodness of it. Talk about cake is nice. Cake is better. Right? Terrible, terrible illustration. <laughs> so as we see the use of God's covenant name, this name Yahweh, we would do well to simply understand that God relates to his beloved within the confines and security of promises. Some of us get into debates and conversations as to whether or not we should use all capital letters or whether our Bible translation should use the word Yahweh, but we miss the point that when we, in, we see the name Yahweh, we need to understand that God is a God who relates to his beloved within the confines and within the safety of promises. Think about the relationships you have. Which ones of those, which of those relationships are within the confines and the safety of a promise? Or which ones of those relationships could break and be over in a moment? When God gives his covenant name, we need to understand that God relates to his people within the structure and within the, the security of promises. As marriage is vastly more than dating, even in our easy divorce society, vastly more than dating. So God's relationship with the church and with Christians is vastly more than a come and go as you please kind of relationship. Okay? Some of you know this and you're freaking out because you're afraid that if you say the wrong thing at the wrong time, you lose that friend. 
And then you put that on God and you think, oh my goodness, if I say the wrong thing at the wrong time, I'm going to lose God. But when God has a covenant name, you should relate to him as a covenant God who is in a relationship with his people such that there's room to fail. We enter into this relationship. How do we enter into this covenant relationship with God? We enter into it by a sort of death and resurrection that is pictured in our baptism. And so we shouldn't allow our commitment to God and his people to be a nonchalant, whenever it's convenient for me kind of relationship. Our commitment to Christ and his kingdom is one of covenantal importance. You hope that I'm more committed to my wife than I am committed to disc golf, right? Right? You hope that I'm more committed to my covenant bride than I'm committed to any other person in the world, right? So many people say they're Christians, and in saying you're a Christian, you're saying you're in a covenant with God, but then you live out some sort of nonchalant, whenever I feel like it sort of way. If God is a covenant God, we don't just hang out when it's convenient for me. Not only should our commitment be seen in light that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, but even more importantly, we should see that God's commitment to us is a covenant-keeping relationship. God has joined himself of his own free will, of his own gracious will. God has committed himself, he has joined himself to his people in a solemn covenant. That's one of the great and terrible horrors of the Roman Catholic teaching of salvation by grace plus works. Within this structure, within that false gospel, a person commits a particular sin and they become out of God's grace and they need to earn their way back in. This isn't even the way a human marriage works. Each Sunday, the Lord's Supper reminds us that God is devoted to us by the new covenant in Christ's blood, and this is no sloppy dating relationship that ends every time we screw up. Do you hear what I'm saying? The Roman Catholic dogma says grace plus works, and if you do the wrong works, you're out, and you have to do the right works to get back in. That isn't even how I relate to my wife. God has bound himself to us in a covenant. This is no sloppy dating relationship that that can't remember how many times we've broken up because we break up every time we forget our month anniversary. You are in a serious relationship with God. And it's serious on both ends. Praise the Lord. It's serious from God. He is bound to us. He is not going to just give up on Job. He gives him his covenant name. God is a covenant-making God. When you see the name Yahweh, when you see Lord in all capital letters, you 
must remember that God is a covenant-making God. And if we want to be his friend, hear me, we must enter that covenant. If you are not a Christian this morning, if you are seeking God and you want to be in right relationship with God, you have to come to him through the covenant. You don't get to him any other way. You have to come through the covenant that he offers to us in Christ. And listen, if you are a friend of God, you are safe and secure in this structure, this unbreakable promise. You aren't hanging out here with God saying, hey, make sure you do everything right. You are built into his house. God has made a precious covenant with you. And when you screw up, you are not, all is not lost because you have a covenant-making God. Faithful. Oh my goodness, what a glorious promise. Saints, we've made it to the third word of the verse. Right? I hope you read the whole Bible. I hope you read large sections at a time. But I hope there's a place in your life where you just read slowly. And you say, I spent 30 minutes in the Word, and I just spent time thinking about how beautiful it is that Lord has used all capital letters. You have a covenant-making God who secures us with his promise. The third thing I want you to see is that God answers. The Lord doesn't deliver a disconnected announcement when God answers, this means it's not a disconnected announcement. It's not a canned stump speech. We are told in verse 1 that Yahweh answered Job. An answer necessary, necessarily follows a previous call or a question. Something happens first and then an answer comes. So when Yahweh answers, this means, what does this mean? This means that all the while that Job has been crying out and feeling forsaken and ignored, God has been present. Everything that has happened up to this point has been directed to God and now God is responding to it. For God to respond to something that has happened, he has to hear it. He has to be aware of it. So when God answers, this means that God has been present. This means Job's prayers have been spoken with deep and convincing sense that there was no one listening. Job's prayers, if we go back to the many chapters before, they seem just totally lost at times. And he, he says it, I feel so like you don't listen to me. But here in verse 1, God proves Job's fears wrong when he answers. Right? If you answer the phone, that means it rang. It vibrated and you were aware of it. So when God answers Job, that means all of the agitation that has been going on in Job's soul, all of the suffering, God was there. God doesn't come onto the scene and ask Job to repeat himself. God doesn't need Sports Center to catch him up on the highlights of what happens while he's been away. 
God has felt so very distant to Job. And Job has been keenly aware that he needs God. But listen, when God answers, this means that God has been fully aware of everything that has been said and everything that has been done. Job is crying out, where are you, Lord? And here when God answers, he says, I've been right here the whole time. I've been here. God wasn't absent when Job lost his possessions. It's a precious word to the Bowers, isn't it? He wasn't asleep when Job's career went up in smoke. God wasn't powerless when Job's children were killed. And the Lord saw clearly when Job's wife mocked him and tempted him to abandon God. God was present for every cruel word spoken by a merciless friend, and he silently listened to every confused and struggling prayer that came out of Job's mouth. It was a long and confusing quiet, but hear me. When you read Yahweh answered, God was there. As God answers, we are reminded of many times that Job pleaded for God to reply. We see one particular instance back in chapter 30, verse 20, where Job says, I cry to you for help, and you don't answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. Many similar verses from words spoken by Job could be highlighted, but I think we would all agree from our memory uh, is that Job deeply longed for God to show up. And he has routinely expressed this deep sense and this deep feeling of being ignored. While Job has been standing firm and crying out for God to answer, Job's friends have basically, basically repeated the refrain that God will not come unless Job repents of whatever sin that has pushed God away. Though we wholeheartedly agree with the friends that repentance is good, Job isn't suffering discipline for rebelling against God. Job is enduring the attack of the evil one and not the punishment of his maker. The usually confident counselors were not expecting this divine visit, and there's a sort of disruption of everything that has been said when God enters the scene. Even before he speaks a word, God's arrival and answer foreshadows Job's justification and his friend's condemnation. Job was longing for God to speak, and Job's friends said, God is never going to come. And so when God comes, there's a sense of, uh-oh, one of us is getting what we expected, and the rest of us are not. And this foreshadows the future when God justifies Job, and he, God expresses the condemnation of his friends. This will be spelled out more accurately in the coming chapters, but this great reversal begins with the initial dawning of God's presence. When God answers, there's a lot that comes along with that. As God answers Job's many groaning prayers, you and I need to be taught and reminded that when we feel abandoned, forsaken, forgotten, or ignored, those feelings may be true of a friend, but they are not true of God. The evil one is a deceiver, and our own imaginations often become twisted by pain. And as God answers Job, let it be a balm to you that your fear of God 
not hearing you in all of your prayers, that it's not true. As God arrives, as God answers, let it heal that fear that is within you, that God doesn't care, that God isn't hearing me, that I don't matter, that I've been forgotten, that my email has been dropped out of the list somehow. Beloved, it's easy to fear that we've been abandoned and forsaken by God in seasons of difficulty. The longer those seasons endure, the easier it seems to be to believe that God doesn't care for us. But let me encourage you to write Psalm 34 on your heart and on your bathroom mirror. Hear the true words of God that should dispel the fears of our own hearts. God himself has told us in Psalm 34, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. It is simply not true that your broken heart means God is far. The scriptures themselves say that God is near to the brokenhearted. Pay close attention to God's promise to his elect in Isaiah 43. Saints, precious words. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'm going to forget all about you and hope you can swim. No. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers... They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. If you believe that God has abandoned you, Christian, you are believing a lie. You are believing the exact opposite of what the Scriptures say repeatedly and clearly. Saints, you are in Christ. Let your lips freely say the precious, from precious memory these Glorious words from Hebrews 13 where God himself promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. You wake up, you get your prayer journal out, and you start writing, Lord, I feel forsaken. I will never leave you or forsake you. Your feelings are wrong. I just feel forsaken and forgotten by the Lord. Your feelings are wrong. You have been promised, saint, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I challenge you to make that any clearer than it is. That is as clear as a promise gets. God has promised his children that he will never, ever, ever leave or forsake. Beloved, let your heart overflow with the song of the psalmist who said, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? A lot is happening when God answers Job. He's showing that he's never forsaken him. Through all of the darkness, all of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the grief, all of the despair and depression, and hopelessness that Job has felt. God's been right there. He didn't forsake him. Job struggled to believe and we struggled to believe. But saints, there are precious promises. Write them down. Write them on your mirror. Put them in your face. Take them to heart. Lastly, let's look at this whirlwind. 
One of the elements in the text that may cause you to read this passage with a harsh and loveless tone is this foreboding presence of a powerful storm that accompanies God's presence. You don't assume um, rainbows and sugar plums when God shows up with a storm, and so it might be easy to assume that this is going to be a harsh and loveless message. But let me give you an illustration. My wife Becca and I, we have two very different responses to storms, and I bet it's fleshed out by everybody in this room. When the sky grows dark and thunder and lightning are in the air, my dear wife well represents team I don't like it. But on the other hand, my bed is never as cozy as when the winds are tossing rain outside. I love a good storm, and for whatever reason, it's hard for me to understand what she's going through. We may not all have the same response to storms, but all of us recognize the presence of great power when a storm comes. Some of us love it, some of us hate it, but all of us would say, there's something powerful going on. Some of us interpret the storm as a threat to our safety, while others find the display of power more exciting than threatening. Love them or hate, hate them, whirling winds and storms are a clear display of power and authority. You may not express it that way. Oh, look at the power and authority rolling down on the forecast. We may not say it that way, but understand we all get it that this is power and authority. When the thunder rolls, the windows shake. And when the lightning strikes, the tree explodes and it burns. When the lightning cracks, the soccer game is over and everybody's out of the pool. When the rains fall, all of our plans change. When the hurricane approaches, we're all thinking about sandbags and some of us are getting out of town. When the storm, what the storm says goes. And it goes for as long as the storm decides for it to last. You and I are at the mercy of storms, and we can't do a single thing to make it less powerful or authoritative. Authority is seen when people listen to you. And when the storm drops rain and everybody says, I guess we're going home, that's authority. When the storm causes your windows to shake and it burns that tree down in your backyard, that's power. That's the storm. And so storms, by their existence, display the power and authority of God. Every storm displays power and authority, but this particular storm, this particular whirlwind, is a unique display of God's presence. Theologians refer to this phenomenon as a theophany, a visible manifestation of God to a human audience. There are a number of theophanies recorded in Scripture as God has revealed himself at many times and in many ways. God spoke to Abraham through angels, but Moses saw the theophany of a burning bush. Pharaoh received God's command through the prophetic work of Moses and Aaron, but Moses and Aaron saw God through the theophany of fire and smoke on Mount Sinai. The storm or whirlwind is one of God's favorite ways to show himself in the Old Testament. The awesome display on Mount Sinai, the guiding pillar of cloud and fire that directed the Hebrews through the wilderness, the chariots of fire in a whirlwind that took Elijah away from Elisha, 
and prophetic and the prophetic vision of Ezekiel that came in a stormy wind and a great cloud. All that craziness that Ezekiel saw came within a storm. In the prophets, terrible storms display God's love and his wrath as they execute his judgment upon his enemies and protect his covenant people from violence. God doesn't send an angel to Job. Instead, he chooses to come in a great display of wind. Without speaking a word, he reveals his power and authority. That storm shows up, power and authority are felt even before God speaks a word. God doesn't ask permission to interrupt, to interject in the heavy conversations that are going on. Why? Because the storm itself demands attention. God will say much about his sovereign rule and control of everything on the earth, but this only explains what he shows by arriving in the storm. Friends, we want God to say a lot of things, and we want him to use particular words, but there are things that God says simply by the things that he's created. And when the storm shows up, God is saying loud and clear, listen, I'm in charge here. I have all power and authority at my beck and call. It all belongs to me. You need to sit back and watch the thunder roll. You need to sit back and let the rain fall. And you need to understand the sermons that God is preaching about himself in those storms. God is in control. God is all power and all authority. We've heard many words about the confusing reality of suffering in the world. And God begins the clarification process not by explaining away all of Job's questions, but he begins this clarification process by riding on a storm that no man can control. There are many lessons to learn in suffering and loss, but the central lesson we must take away is that God rules over the storm. What do you need to know when you get a diagnosis of cancer? You need to know that God rides on the storm. What do you need to know when your wife threatens to leave you? You need to know that God rides on the storm. What do you need to know when your job is lost, when your health is lost? What do you need to know? You need to know first and foremost that God rides the storm. Awesome authority and terrible power belong to God and no one can resist him. What he says goes and what comes our way is all according to God's plan. We must get this central understanding of God rooted deeply within us. All power and authority belongs to God. Nothing happens apart from his will. Though there is a frightening display of God's power and authority in this storm, and it doesn't give us an easy answer as to why God ordained so much loss for Job, who is such a good man, There is a certain comfort that comes from knowing that everything that happens in our lives is directly measured and intended by God. There's a certain fright that comes from the God who rides the storm, but there's also a certain comfort that comes knowing that everything's under his power and control. It may be confusing, it may be hard, but to know that everything is measured and intended by God is important. 
It may seem cruel to us at time what God chooses to do, but understand it is far better a world under God's wise control than one ultimately responding to the sinful and foolish wills of people. People like to say that the world sort of just goes about responding to the free wills of men. (laughs) What a terrible thing to imagine. Ultimately, all things are under God's control. There is no greater display of this reality that even the most terrible, awful things are under the control and purposes of God. There is no greater display of this than than the cross of Jesus Christ. All of Jesus' friends wept and panicked when he was arrested, when he was tortured and crucified. Everything seemed to be ruined when Jesus was taken captive. But in his unimaginable wisdom, God was rescuing his suffering friends through the cross. When Christ was crucified, everyone's interpretation of what God was doing was wrong. It looked awful. It looked like total loss. But what God was actually doing at the cross was rescuing his friends. God's power and authority were in perfect control as Jesus was bound, whipped, and pierced. Nothing appeared to be less true at the time, but God was using the most wicked acts of men and the most awful suffering of the only truly innocent man to acquire the greatest gift that humanity could ever receive. God appeared to Job in a theophany of a whirlwind, But in these last days, God has revealed himself more fully in Jesus. His power displayed in blessing children, healing sick women, curing crippled men, and feeding the hungry. God's power and authority are not perfectly understood by the storm, and so we see his power and authority more clearly through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One day Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, and that day will be more like this terrible storm. But on that day, all who trust in Christ will be sweetly saved. You need to understand that that God is the one who rides the storm. You need to understand that God is the one who is ruling and reigning over every little thing. And you need to understand that God has revealed himself most fully in Christ showing that God is doing unimaginable good through unimaginable wickedness and that God is doing gracious things for his beloved. Gifts can be a hard language to speak, but none do it better than God the Father. He always does what is best for his children and he proves it in the gift of his Son. Friends, some of you, this is, this is going to be a hard sermon to hear. I hope that you understand that everything is under God's control. And now the question sits on you whether or not God is good. But hear this word from 1 Peter 3. Would this be the plan? Would this be the willing of a bad God? We read in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Would God, would a bad God give his only son to suffer and die for unrighteous people like you and me? Or would a good God do that? God is certainly good. 
And God is certainly in control.